Welcome back to Toradi Mechanach Yomi with the OU Women's Initiative. My name is Michal Horowitz. Today we will continue our study of Sefer Shoftim. We are learning Parak Gimel. So in Parak Gimel, the theme continues. You won't be surprised. The theme of B'nai Israel straying from the path of God, then getting into trouble, which is divinely sent with the nations that are within the land and surrounding the land. They call it Hashem. Hashem sends salvation in the form of a prophet slash shofate. There's a period of tranquility and quiet. And then the same pattern happens again. We actually meet three different shoftim, three different judges in this parish, in this parak. Osniel ben Kenaz, Ehud ben Gera, and Shmagar ben Anat. So very interestingly, we meet three different judges. So let us learn the parak together. And the parak begins by telling us that they did not eradicate, again, parak Gimel. They did not successfully eradicate all of the nations who lived amongst them, which we have already seen and which we already know. And then the Pasuk tells us, And the children of Israel were dwelling amongst the Canaanites, which is never a good idea, and that's certainly not what Moshe Rabbeinu instructed them to do. They were living amongst the Canaanite nations. What happens if we live too long amongst Umos HaOlam? This is exactly what Shimon and Levi were afraid of. If Dina stays with Shem and they take the deal that Shem wants, they'll start to intermarry. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and they gave their daughters to their sons. And from intermarriage... They start to worship foreign gods. And the children of Israel did bad in the eyes of God. They forgot Hashem, their God. They started to worship Baal and Asherah. And God was very angry. And he sold them into the hands of Kushan, Rishasayim, Melech, Aram, Neharayim. And Hashem gave them over into the hands of Kushan, the name of the king, Rishasayim. We're going to talk about what that word means. Melech Aram Narayim. Vayavdu B'nei Yisrael Kushan Rishasayim Shmona Shanim. And they were subjected to the rulership of Kushan Rishasayim for eight years. Who is Kushan Rishasayim? So according to the Steindelts Nevi'im, Kushan, similar to Kush, might well be the original name of this king. But it is almost certain that Rishasayim was not his real name. Rather, it was a corruption or addition to his actual name that expresses his wickedness, like Risha, Rishus, of his method of government and leadership. Rishasayim is actually doubly, doubly wicked. Now, where did he come from? He arrived from quite far away. Far away is Aram Naharayim, the land between the rivers, which is the area of Mesopotamia, in the region of modern-day Iraq. So this is a king from far who is doubly wicked and they are subjugated to his rulership for eight years. And I think what emerges from this parak, you will see the battles of, of the, the Israelites and the uh, Shoftim with these different kings. We meet three different Shoftim is that times were not tranquil. <laughs> the people went in under Yehoshua, but they were not tranquil times. They were fighting enemies. They were subjected to foreign powers. It was a time of upheaval. Maybe they said, I can't believe we're living through this. Maybe they said, the world is so chaotic. Who could imagine such a thing? Maybe they were just used to it. I don't know. But sometimes we think our world is more chaotic than ever before. Interestingly, in Sefer Shoftim, Amalek makes an appearance a number of times. So what did they do when they get into trouble and they're subjugated to the 
the king from far away who is doubly wicked. Children of Israel cry out to God. And Hashem establishes them for them a savior. And he saves them. Who is it? Osniel ben Kenaz. So the savior is Osniel ben Kenaz. Now, interestingly, the Medrash teaches, the Medrash Barashas Rabbah, how did Osniel judge the people? What does it mean he judged the people? He interceded with God on their behalf. He said, God, you promised Moshe you would save the Jews even if they were undeserving. You must keep your promise even if we see our period of intermarriage, even if they're worshipping Baal and the Asherah, you said you would save them. And therefore, that's what it means, according at least to the Medrash, that Osniel ben Canaan was a show fate. He passed judgment. You said you would save him no matter what. I don't know why I said that. Sorry. The Spirit of God was upon him. He didn't judge Israel. He saved Israel by invoking a judgment in the heavenly courts. And he is victorious over Kushan Rishasayim, who is subjugating the people for eight years. So we see here that Hashem was with him. And Hashem put the king of Aram Narayim into the hands of Asna ben Kenaz. The land was quiet for 40 years. And Asna ben Kenaz dies. This, this period of 40 years is very, very interesting because we know that 40 in, in Tanakh and in Halacha is an important um, unit of time for starting something new. Where do we see that? 40 is a measurement of uh, a unit of creating a new entity. How long did the people wander in the desert? 40 years. To root out one generation and start a new generation who would be able to enter the land. They wandered the desert for 40 years. How many days does the spies tour the land? I know I'm out of chronological order here. The spies tour the land for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's change. Let's create a new entity, Moshe hoped. From a slave mentality to a free people in our own land. How long did it rain in the days of Noah? 40 days and 40 nights. How many sa'ah of water do we have in a mikvah for it to be alachically kosher? 40. The Gemara tells us 40 days before the creation of the Vlada, Basko comes out and says, Bas ploni the ploni. So for, how long was Moshe on the mountain for Matan Torah? 40 days and 40 nights. Total 120 days, but the truth is it was in sets of 40. So we see that 40 is a very, very important number, both in Halacha and in Hashkafa, and in Torah, and for creating a new entity, a gear who goes down into the mikvah, a 40 say of water, he goes down and not Jewish after the whole process of gears, and he comes up and he's a new person, he's a totally new person, a woman who goes down who is Tameh, according to the laws of Torah and Mishpacha, and then she comes up and she is Tar. So we see that 40 is an important unit for creating something new. Though the whole peer perhaps is the land was quiet for 40 years, since under Osniel ben Kenaz they had victory and they called out to God, and Hashem established the salvation for them through Asna ben Kenaz. Perhaps the hope of a Baruch Hu is that the people will not revert back to sin. I want to actually quote something very, very interesting from the art school Nevi'im Rishonim Rubin edition. A perspective, it's called a perspective of the narratives of the book of Shoftim, okay? It is inserted at this point in the commentary of Art School to Shoftim, and I found this very interesting. In contrast to the relatively lengthy accounts of sin and war that comprise the book of Judges, this verse states, 
A long period of tranquility ensued without reporting even a single event of that period. What happened in these 40 years? We don't know. The next thing we do for your reference is Asnael ben Kanaz dies, and then it says, That's Pasuk Gidbeis. So after telling me about Asnael's victory over this king from Anram Naharayim, Kushan Rishasayim, and then it tells me 40 years of quiet. The next thing it knows, it sounds like the next day the people are sinning again. The people continue to do bad in the eyes of Hashem. And therefore, God sent Eglon, the king of Moab, over them because they did bad in the eyes of Hashem. And then, Eglon, the king of Moab, comes upon them. Ammon joins the battle. Amalek, our enemies, always get together. Rashi tells us in the beginning of Parshas Balak, what are Moab and Ammon doing together? You see the same thing here. Moab and Ammon, they hate each other. Rashi says in the beginning of Parshas Balak, say for Midbar, it's true they hate each other. But to defeat Israel, or they think they can defeat Israel, they'll always get together. They have Achtos to Lahabdil, uh, they have Achtos to come destroy the Jews. So the next thing we know after this 40 years of quiet, as when the people stray from the ways of God, he sends Eglon, the king of Moab, he sends Bnei Ammon, he sends Amalek, and they start to attack. So I think that this is a very important perspective that I came across when I was preparing this, this, this parak. And the art school uh, edition notes here, in contrast to the relatively lengthy accounts of sin and war that comprise Sefer Shoftim, this verse states, a long period of tranquility ensued without repeating even a single event of that period. What happened during 40 years of quiet? We don't know. And the context of the narrative is clear. It was a time when the nation maintained the high standard of righteousness that the Torah expects of it. So in other words, if it didn't tell us anything, it means for 40 years they were going on the path of Torah. The 613 mitzvahs was their code of conduct. As the sages declare, had Israel not sinned, quoting Masechus Nadarim, only the Torah and Sefer Yoshua, which contains the boundaries of the land of Israel, would have been given. The reason we have the other Sifrei Tanakh is because they teach the concept of schar and onish, reward and punishment. And they contain musr and lessons, admonitions and lessons that direct people on the proper path. In fact, in over 400 years in the period of judges, the people were sinful only during 110 years. I thought that that was very, very interesting. It seems like when you open Sefer Shoftim, that my gosh, in this period of over 300 years, they're sinning every five seconds. The reality is, is that during the periods of quiet, we are not told any information, but if it was quiet, it means they were going in the ways of Hashem. And the people were only sinful during 110 years, quoting Rashi to say for Yechazgal, of this time period. So I thought that that was something important to keep in mind as we go through the book, and it seems like, oh my gosh, they're sinning every five seconds. It's actually not true. So there were 40 years of quiet. Then they start to sin, sin again. And like we said, Eglon, the king of Moab, join along with him as Ammon and Amalek because to, to destroy us, you know, the International Court of Justice at the Hague, Shamirachim Aleidu, Every enemy gets together to destroy the Jews. Every enemy gets together to say the state of Israel is committing genocide. Even if historically they hate each other, when it comes to bashing the Jews, to destroying the Jews, all of a sudden they're all friends. You see it also? Look at this. They served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. It wasn't such a time of tranquility. Maybe they also thought there's, this is unprecedented in history. Nothing like this has ever happened before. I don't know. They called out to Hashem. And Hashem established a salvation for them. Ehud ben Geira ben Hayamini ish iter yad yamino. So who is established for them as the is the savior now? Ehud ben Gera, I mean Pasuk Tasvav. He is from the tribe of Binyamin, 
And Ish Iter Yad Yimino, his right hand is bound up, which means he's left-handed. And this is going to be significant for the narrative. So they send a present, a tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud, because he is left-handed, he puts his sword in his cloak on the right side. And nobody would expect the sword to be on the right side. If it's on the right side, he's going to pull it out of the sheath with the left hand. Almost everybody else has their sword on their left side, so they could pull it out with the right hand. So that means he was able to sneak in with a sword, and the officers and the protectors and the advisors of the king would not know. Furthermore, he made a double-edged sword. It was shorter, but double-edged, so he could hide it even better on his right side. And he brings this present, this tribute, this appeasement to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon was an ish barimot. He, he was a very obese man. And after the, the Navi, the Shofate, Ehud ben Gera presents the present. He finishes and he says, I have to tell you something. I have a secret. And the king says, clear the room. Abdel Yosef says, clear the room and I reveal myself. And the king thinks, wow, what am I about to hear now? And Ehud comes close and he draws the sword. Well, actually, I want to tell you one thing. I want to tell you beautiful Rashi. And Ehud said, I have to tell you the word of God. Now remember, we've already been told that the king is very obese. So this could not have been easy for him. He gets up from upon his throne. This is a sign of covered for the word of God. Because Ehud just told him. And Pasuchaf. I have the word of God to tell you. The king gets up, which cannot be easy in his compromised place of physical health. Rashi to the Pasuk, it is Pasuk Chaf. Rashi says very beautifully, I want to quote Rashi for you. Here it is, underline. Wow, Rashi quotes Medrash Chanchuma. Because he stood up to show respect for the sign of God, remember this is Egon, the king of Moab, he merited that who came out from him? Rus. So even though Agal is about to be killed in a very gory description in Paragemal of Shoftim, he rose to show respect to God. Yeah, and it was difficult for him, so he perhaps had a double schar. He merited that Rush should come out of him. Ehud sends forth his left hand. He takes the sword quickly from his right thigh and he sticks it into Eglon's stomach. The entire sword, the blade and the handle are consumed by the fat of Eglon, the king of Moab, his bowels at this point empty, very graphic descriptions, and Ehud quickly runs away, and he closes the door, and the servants of the king, Eglon, come to tend to their king. They see it's locked, and they say, oh, wow, he must be just using the bathroom. After a certain amount of time, the door doesn't open. They take the key, they open, and they see, behold, the king has died. Ehud runs away. The people are saved once again. And Moab was humbled, if you will, submitted that day under the hands of Israel for 80 years. So remember, in this parak alone, we're told about 40 years of tranquility, 80 years of tranquility. I just want to point out the last. So uh, Ehud, the Shofet, saved the people, killed the king. I want to talk about the last Pasuk, just for one second. I know our time is up here. But Pasuk Lamed. Vatikonamo, but oh, I read that already. Pasuk Lamed al. Vachorav Hayash Magar ben Anas. We meet a third Shofate. And after him, after Ehud, was Shmagar ben Anas. Vayach es plishtim sheish meos ish. And he smote the plishtim 600 men. Vayosha gamhu es And the Shmagar ben Anas 
also saved Israel, who was Shmagar ben Onas. Our scroll quotes Seder Olam. Shmagar was a levy who was a judge for only several months following the death of Ehud. His brief reign of a few months is included in the eight years of tranquility mentioned in the Pasuk above. So I think the lesson really from this from this part, uh, from the whole Sefer, is that it wasn't so tranquil for them either. How exactly did they feel? What exactly did they think? I didn't live there. I don't know. Maybe it was precedented. Maybe they were used to wars. But Eretzusol nicknames B'Yisurim. It's very clear from these psukim that for the people of the time of Shoftim, when they went in the ways of Hashem, Hashem was on their side and there was tranquility. When they were Chman and son intermarried and served Baal and uh, the Asherah, Hashem was not on their side. Okay, we are learning today. Lilui Nishmat, Imahoseinu Hayehakarot. Esther Oppenheimer, Allah Shalom, and Sarah Shanker, Allah Shalom, each deeply devoted and proud to transmit their family's Torah legacy to the next generations. As what Hashem, we will continue tomorrow. Call to and thank you to all.